Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit TobinBrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. everybody and welcome to the show, made possible by our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. It's Julian DeStoop sitting in for Sam Edmund. Today we're joined by a man who by his own admission was a public failure, but who then became a far more private success. Fergus Watts was twice a first round draft pick who played only six AFL games at two clubs. That didn't stop him going on to create Australia's largest independent marketing organisation, He's now pouring his energy into a foundation he got so much from as a teenager, the not-for-profit Reach Foundation, as their new CEO. Fergus, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Julian, thank you. Good to be here. Great to have you here today, because I imagine life is is pretty busy uh, on the home front and the work front as well. It is. It, well, it's about to get busier. Well, my wife's expecting our third child under three and a half, so uh, it's all about to heat up. Now, a public failure, that, that seems a bit tough. On yourself? Yeah, well, I think it's the truth. I think if if you're a first-round draft pick, which I was, pick 14 to the Crows, promised the world, you know, thought I was going to have a 15-year career at centre-half forward, and uh, and then came back to the Saints and, uh, you know, traded for another first-round pick at, at that point and then broke my leg in round two and didn't play again. So, you know, as far as my football went, it was you know, was a failure, my career. We'll delve back into the footy very shortly, but just, just right here and right now, only 36 years of age, you, you've packed a lot in already. We'll, we'll chat about Bastion, but right now, what, what's on your plate from a, from a work perspective? So I'm the CEO of the Reach Foundation and I'm the chairman of Bastion. So um, they're, they're kind of the two things. C, uh, CEO Reach is my full-time um, job and, uh, and, and Reach is a, is a youth organisation founded by Jim Steins and it's all about preventative mental health. So teaching young people emotional and resilient skills and to be able to sort of conquer life, basically. And that, that's what Reach has done for 30 years. It's pioneered the work. It, it is the most influential youth organisation in the country. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's, a, it's an honour to be able to continue that work. So how do you split your time with Bastion and Reach? I mean, how, how's the sort of breakdown there? Oh, it's... Ninety percent reach, ten percent bastion, probably. Yep. But it's 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 a bit of a broad answer because um, I suppose it's no different to you know Bassett, who's the CEO of Seek and is also the chairman of St Kilda. Yep. You know, like there there is a, a, a crossover on that sort of stuff. But as I've I've always said, I think the only way to live life is is all inclusive. You know, so the whole work life balance thing that everyone goes on about. I just don't think it makes any sense. It's your work and your life it all combines into one. So, um, so uh, being the chairman, the non-executive chairman of Bastion, um, is a, is more of an oversight position and making sure we're overseeing the organisation, the governance of the organisation, and those sort of things. Where my job at Reach is to really drive it and maximise the impact that we're having on young people in the community. And there's enough going on on the home front as well. My word, there is. Yes, three kids under three and a half any day now. <laughs> 
and uh, and yeah, it'll all get very hectic. So it's been a great journey, but we need to go back to the start. So 1985, you're born in London, mm-hmm. and as a four-year-old, you moved to Australia. Why the move from the family to Australia? Uh, my parents had a business. It was a it was a recruitment business at the time, and then the, the um, my old man tells the story that the you know the only market that that was going well it was international recruitment is what they did so they had an international business and everything was really struggling except the australian business basically so we moved over here in 1989 and and uh, yeah never looked back what are your earliest memories of of living in australia um oh i i have this very distinct memory of my mother um to go to a birthday party in in London, your kids used to dress up in in bow ties and suspenders and all, you know all that sort of stuff to go to a birthday party. And <laughs> I remember going to a birthday party at the Sandringham Indoor Sports Centre, playing indoor cricket and volleyball, and and kids wearing mambo t-shirts and that sort of stuff. And mum dressing me up in the bow tie and the suspenders, and uh, it was a disaster for a young fella. And I I remember at the time thinking, that's it, I'm Australian now, not English, and. Yeah, you know, it's time to move forward. <laughs> that's not that's not a great. Oh, mate, it wasn't that, a good. That's not a great introduction. <laughs> no. That, and Aussie rules football. I, I'm assuming as a four year old, you you're living in Melbourne. It's just straight away you remember footy. Your mates playing footy, getting involved in footy. Yes, but interestingly enough, I went through the. I think it was Vic Kick back then. I went to a Vic Kick program, and I said to my old man, "I'm never playing football again." <laughs> I, you know, and uh, and he tells a funny story about me going along and just being totally disengaged. Um, with footy, but then once I got into, I played at East Sandringham Junior Footy Club, and uh, I think they might have forged the uh, the birth date on that and got me in a little bit earlier, so I could go play football there. But um, once I got into the under nines program at at uh, East Sandy, I mean, I never looked back. Footy was my whole life. The Saints, it was that you followed the Saints early. Did yeah, yeah, yeah. Many days at Moorabbin, or was that a bit before your time? Uh, no, I remember distinctly plenty of days at Moorabbin, and. Uh, we always used to uh, take the mickey out of my brother because, you know, he used to. I was glued to the footy start to finish, and my brother would turn up, he'd eat his pie, he'd eat his chocolate bar, and he'd go to sleep under the seats. <laughs> Younger brother? Younger yeah. brother. And, uh, and, you know, and that was. So we had a lot of fond memories at, at Moorabbin, and then, um, you know, my old man um, under Rod Butters' reign as the president joined the board. Uh, and there was a CEO for a couple of year long sort of caretaker stints as part of that. So. Um, you know, I grew up with St Kilda, really in our family. Heroes as a kid, who'd you love watching? Oh, it was very hard to go past Stuart Lowe, you know. Big buckets. Um, it's very hard to go past Lowe. And, but I, I was, I think I was somewhat unique as a, as a young guy because I would go to the football and I would watch forward patterns, you know. I'd watch... What age are we talking about here? Like 10, you know. <laughs> you are like out of 15, you know. And I would, like the ball would be up the other end. And you know, someone would take a big hanger or something would happen, and they go, "I just see that," and I would, I would say, "No, I'm, I'm watching the other end," you know. And that was always what really fascinated me about football was the patterns, the strategic, the all the movement. And I used to go to the game and sort of watch the whole thing. And I was never a massive fan, you know. I was never a massive supporter, and and, and now I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not, but passionate about the game. Where'd you know? that come from? I to say, I think it's just the way I'm wired. To be honest, like I'm just, I'm just much more interested in in why something works, how it works, rather than necessarily what it does. You touched on your your junior footy club there. Just take us through your junior career, and at what stage did it start to get serious? And you thought, oh, I'd like to do this um, at the very elite level. 
Yeah, well, I think I went through the stage that a lot of young young people do is, you know, during winter I wanted to be a professional footballer and during summer I wanted to be a professional cricketer. Um, and that was it. And uh, I remember there being... I remember when I was sort of 15, 16, always wanting to be a professional footballer, but, you know, so does everyone. And uh, I remember going for a run with my old man and and blowing up on the run. And, he, you know, he said to me, this is the age where you, you've got to be fit, you know. You've actually got to train. You can't just naturally just, you know, you're not just naturally can run around. Um, and he said, you know, if you want to play footy, you've got to train. You know, like that's the way it works. So I remember a couple of periods like that or, or sort of defining moments where I thought, well, I've really got to think about this. And then when I finished my under-17th year, um, it was – I got some feedback from from recruiters and and uh, from other people in football saying, you know, you can catch it and you can kick it and you can play the game. There's no question about that. But you're way too slow and you're never going to get drafted. And and so the next day, I remember we played. Um, uh, I, th- I think it was Gippsland. We played in our last game for the Sandy Dragons in the under 17th year. And then the very next day, I started sprint training down at Dendy Park in Brighton, pulling sleds and and training with other you know stall gift sprinters and those sort of things and 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 basically trained every day uh, until that point to improve my agility and my speed. Not that I was ever that quick. In fact, I was probably very slow, um, but certainly improved myself a lot along that journey. So, you know, it, it really started at the end of that 17th year. Yeah, so and then and obviously you got your, your second year tack up yeah. after that. You know, you're 197, you're 90 kilos, key forward, big prospect. How was that second year for you and, and what sort of, you know, sort of conversations we have with footy clubs about being drafted. Yeah, well, my 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 top age year was was great. You know, and I really, I mean, like, I did everything right. You know, like everything. Trained, was always doing extras, was eating right, was you know all that sort of stuff. All my mates in year twelve were going out and drinking, and I didn't drink a drop when I was in year twelve. Like, I was really committed to the process, um, and then. Played school footy at Wesley College, so I played the 10 APS games through that, played through the Sandy Dragons, and then, um, you know, played the Vic Metro Carnival and, and you know, played well, won the Vic Metro Best and Fairest. I was All-Australian under 18 that year. Um, and then sort of from there, I suppose it was a matter of where I was getting drafted, not if. And you touched on your dad before, Jim, becoming, you know, CEO at St Kilda and working high up at the Saints. What what age were you then when he when he did that? He had two, two cracks at it. Um, the first time I must have been 15 maybe uh, and then the second time was when I was at the Crows yeah. and there was some crossover when I came back to the Saints yeah. first time did that was there any issues for you did it having your dad involved and you're trying to make your way through was there any issues there or no nah, not the it, first time no. no not when I was 15 if anything it was beneficial because yeah. you know I, he, he could team me up with a couple of different recruiters to get some insight or get some feedback or you know all those sort of things we had um we had Xavier Clark come and live with us when he, he got drafted over from the NT and he billeted with us for a few months. And, you know, so that was great to get to experience that. So it was beneficial in that in that first one. Um, the second time, getting traded back to a club where your old man's a CEO, that, that's got a few complications to it and a few hairs on it. But, uh, you know, sort of we worked through that and, and uh, it was what it was. Yeah, because you've got Ned Reeves at the moment playing for Hawthorne and his dad's the CEO. Can you sort of relate to that? Yeah, I, I can, certainly. I, I didn't think it would be a big deal. I mean, when it happened, I remember speaking to Grant Thomas through the trade period and I, and and, uh, and also my manager, and it was like, I can't go to the Saints. Like, my old man's at the Saints. Like, it's a bit ridiculous. 
And uh, I remember Tomo and a couple others saying, no, nah, it's like, you know, am I a man? So it's, it's irrelevant. It's got nothing to do with me. I'm totally removed from the system. Like, you know, they, they pick whoever they pick is on on its merits. It's got nothing to do with me. So I thought, yeah, okay, well, that's no big deal and that'll be fine. And it's not. You know, it wasn't a big deal, mm. right? And uh, and so reality is if, is if if I hadn't have either got injured or, you know, went on and, and had a long career, you know, it would have been a completely irrelevant uh, little blip, you know, but the reality is I didn't do that and I was at a club and my old man was a CEO. So people will think about that, whatever they think about it. And to be honest, it's more of an external ego position than it is any, anything that is actually drenched in reality. We'll touch on that after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Journey, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. So despite enormous promise, Fergus Watts' AFL career is about to pass by in a flash as injuries and setbacks lurk around every other corner. Next, that door slams shut, but another opens. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We're chatting to former footballer turned highly successful businessman, Fergus Watts. Fergus, pick 14, 2003 National Draft. You're taken by the Adelaide Crows. Did you have any inkling that you might be heading into state? I did a little bit. Um, I thought there was a chance I was going to get out to Geelong or to Essendon in some of those earlier picks. And, um, oh God, it was a while ago now, but I think uh, there was there was one particular pick. I can't remember if it was Kane tonight, Tanase or Kepler Bradley or someone went where they weren't meant to go. Mm-hmm. And then that sort of um, threw the rest of that, that sort of first round a little bit. It put everyone out of position, I think. And Kepler being the main other big guy in that draft... Um, and he went out to Essendon. Essendon, yep. Um, six, I reckon. Yeah. And so that, that sort of flipped that a little bit. And then once that happened, I remember thinking, yeah, well, Adelaide is a is a likely outcome. And Port Adelaide had picked 15. Um, and uh, and I thought that might have been a chance as well. What are your memories of draft night? <laughs> I remember all my mates going to schoolies <laughs> and me packing my bags. That's what I remember. I remember having a... Uh, like a, a a bit of a get together at my place um, afterwards, and none of my mates being there because they'd all left to go to Byron Bay, and uh, a few of our guys from the old footy club and some of those sort of things, like like our parents' age, um, were there, and uh, and I was getting on a flight at eight or nine a.m. the next morning to go to Adelaide, you know, so I was packing my bag and saying goodbye to my girlfriend, and and <laughs> that was it. So round seventeen, two thousand and four, you make your debut against the Western Bulldogs. You seven touches. Kick a goal. Scotty Welsh kicks seven. You win by five goals. Everyone seems to remember fondly their first game. Yeah. What are your memories? I remember, I don't know if I've ever spoken about this, I remember walking out from the huddle. Uh, I think I started on a half-forward flank maybe or something like that. I remember walking out from the huddle. It's Nigel Smart's last game. Packed house. Noise was incredible. And uh, I remember nearly crying. Yeah. You know, I remember feeling this sort of overwhelming emotion as I walked out and had that moment where I was like, this is this is it. I've wanted to play an AFL game my whole life and I'm about to do it, you know. Um, so I distinctly remember that. And then, uh, yeah, I remember that being, a, being, being great. I remember 
particular moment where um, Smarty kicked the ball in from 50 and, and uh, I marked it in the goal square and kicked a goal. And, uh, you know, for, to be Nigel Smart, the legend's last game of footy, um, and then having that moment with him was really nice. And you had a decent day out in the SA NFL one day. Ten <laughs> goals in a final. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that... You must that, have been that, feeling it that day. That happens as well. You know, I flew... The day before, um, I flew to Perth um, f- to be the emergency. The Crows were playing the Eagles in uh, in the uh, first final, yeah, second final, final, I can't remember. Yeah, yep. And, uh, and I, I went over there and, and sort of did the warm-up and uh, then, you know, no one was injured. And then I packed my bags and got back on the plane and, and flew the red eye home. And got home late, you know, whatever time that lands, midnight or something like that, the night before. And then uh, and then went to, you know, um, to footy park and, and played that game. And yeah, yeah, had a good day. So two years at the Crows. And then you traded for pick 17 to the Saints, where your dad is, as we mentioned before. So just take us, when did you think there might be a move from the Crows? Were you keen to get out of the Crows and get back? How did it all sort of unfold? Um, so I was, uh, it, it went up and down in that last year. So I was 23rd man a lot. Um, I mean, for weeks and weeks and weeks in a row, I um, was playing well in the SNFL. Uh, Crows were playing really well. Crows were on top of the ladder. And the, the honest answer is, looking back now as a 36-year-old and an 18-year-old kid, I was just petulant, you know. I was just wanting more, complaining about not getting picked. Grass is greener on the other side. Um, all that sort of stuff. And uh, and there was a couple of moments there throughout the year where I, th- where I was like, no, I'm going to stay at the Crows and I'll sign a new deal and, and that you know I want to commit to that. And then there were other times when, you know, I remember a couple of times where it was like, well, if you know this person gets injured or that person gets injured, then you'll play, you know, and that person did get injured and then they pick someone else, you know, and stuff like that, which happens every week in footy. But me really sort of cracking the sads about that a bit and, and, and then bring – and so having that from a football perspective and then also um, trying to get settled in a new city. Uh, reality is I struggled with that. Yeah. Um, and I struggled with that for a number, number of reasons um, and the lure of being able to play back in Victoria um, was – you know, it was too strong. And, and, and so, I'd, you know, I'd had a couple of conversations with the Saints, with, with Tomo, Grant Thomas, who was the coach at the time. Had a couple of conversations with him. And, uh, and he was saying, you know, we got uh, Rewald, Kaziski, Garrick. Um, you know, we want to play four bigs. We want to push Rui up the ground more. Cozzy can play on the ruck. You know, we, want, we, want, we need another key forward. We want it to be you. Um, and so I was having those conversations. And I thought, well, if I've got just as many opportunities back in Melbourne from an AFL perspective and I can live in Melbourne, then that's a good decision, you know? Um, so I did that and, you know, there's a whole bunch of other realities around that that I wasn't really aware of at the time. Um, uh, but, yeah, that's sort of how it came about. So you make your Saints debut round one, 2006, against the Eagles, Subiaco. They've come off just losing a granny, so amazingly strong side. Five touches, dropped to the VFL the next week. Two weeks later, you break your ankle. The next week. The next week. Yeah. So I um I was playing all right. Like I remember kicking five in the practice game against Sydney. I think the week before that game at Subi, um I was in I was in good nick. I was I was feeling good. I was playing good. Um and then uh, yeah played that game at Subi and and you know 
didn't blow the lights out, but, you know, felt kind of okay, like I was finding my feet. And then, uh, yeah, got dropped, and, and the reason at that point was match-ups, you know, we'd just drop a big bike, bring in a small bike, blah, blah, blah. And uh, and then, yeah, was playing out of Port Melbourne in the VFL that week. I, I kicked, I can't remember, but it was, you know, two or three or four in the first half, and was was playing good, feeling great, and then, yeah, um, twisted and broke my leg, and that was basically it. And it, was it a straightforward break, or was it... Was it no, it was a spiral fracture. So I'd ruptured my ankle the year before the yep. Crows, and because I was I was so close to playing every week, I, I didn't tell anyone. So I would strap my leg up. I'd steal tape and all this sort of stuff and strap my leg up um, by myself and not tell anyone that I was hurt until I got to a point where I couldn't really walk on it anymore and I had to sort of fess up that I'd been playing with this injury for a couple of months. Um, and then so and then I, I came back to St Kilda, and obviously because of the stupidity of that, my left ankle was weak. Yeah. And so then came back and uh, and then this, I, I bent over to pick the ball, caught my foot in the ground and twisted. I got tackled at the time. And so it created a spiral fracture of my the fibula, the outside bone. And then it was a dislocation and uh, a full rupture. And I, I mean, I really, really got into it. So then by the end of 2007, it's over. You, you're delisted mm. by the Saints. Early 20s, you know, Great junior career, you're thinking you have a long AFL career, and then it's done. Well, that's right. I had, I think I had uh, something like 12 operations in the la- in the 18 months that followed on my ankle, um, whether that be clean-outs or restructural stuff or whatever it was. I just ankle just never got right. I was trying to rush it back, couldn't quite get it done. Um, and it just it just never came good. To this day, it's, it's no good. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I had the great joy of breaking my jaw in the last game. I played at Casey and uh, and then walked into the coach's room on crutches with a big swollen face <laughs> and got the sack. <laughs> God, that's not glamorous. It wasn't ideal, no. <laughs> no. So how was that mentally to deal with at the time? And then I guess in hindsight, how much did you learn about yourself in that period? I learned an enormous amount, you know, and, and your point at the start about my career being a failure was the greatest thing that ever happened to me mm. because in business, you fail all the time and as an entrepreneur, you fail all the time, but m- most of the time, my experience of people I come across in business, they're so scared of failing, so they strategize for months and months and months trying to get this perfect outcome and they write hordes of documents and all these sort of things that, that come out just so they can get it perfect. And the reality is it's never perfect, you know? And so through through the experience I had in footy, it's, it's okay to fail, you know? You failed quite publicly, you know? And to a point where, you know, like I used to get abused walking down the street and even when I finished football, for years afterwards, I would get, you know, especially if I went to Adelaide. <laughs> Not <laughs> forgiving over there. I got plenty of grief and... Uh, and, you know, I remember walking to a spud bar in Caulfield one time and, you know, a guy stopping his car, rolling down the window and just hurling abuse at me. Like, so you, you fail on a public stage. A failure in business then, I mean, is such a minute thing. So yeah. it was the best thing that happened to me because it just, it really taught me that it's okay to fail. It's okay to have these vulnerable moments emotionally. It's okay to deal with all these sort of things as long as you get up again and you, and you try quickly, you know, and you learn fast. And that's what my life's been about ever since. So you're embarking on a footy career though at the time that you thought was going to last a lot longer than it did. You're not at uni at the time. No. You haven't got a degree at the time. No. Nope. Was there an element of what the hell am I going to do now? 
Oh my word, yes. I made no clue. I mean, I'd uh, I, I I came out of, of footy. I mean, I don't even know if I had an email address. You know, like <laughs> I didn't have a clue what to do. And I met with. Um, I got some advice. The best way to do this is just go meet with a bunch of people, right, and learn what they do and understand what an accountant does and a lawyer does and a you know whatever. So I did that, and I walked into an advertising agency, and uh, and sort of just really liked the vibe of it, if nothing else. You know, they were wearing T-shirts, and there was music playing, and they weren't wearing suits, and it was stuffy, and, and you know, no one talking. And I just liked that vibe better. Um, and then so, anyway, long story short, I ended up getting offered a job at that advertising agency and accepted it, and that was sort of how I started my career. We'll get stuck into that after the break. You're with This Is Your Journey, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funeral. Celebrating lives, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Fergus's Bastion Group becomes a Bastion Collective and a global marketing advisory and communications juggernaut. Just how did that happen? We find out next. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. We're with former footballer and business pioneer Fergus Watts. So Fergus, the end of the business world, Bastion Group, as it was known, was founded in 2009. How did the idea come about? Was it on the back deck of your parents' place? Down in Rye, on the Mornington Peninsula. Um, it probably had some uh, forming of an idea on there, for sure. Um, came about because I was working in an advertising agency that just got acquired, and they'd merged with two other businesses. Uh, what Two businesses merged together. And the thing that I was fascinated about was the merging of the company, the kind of the way the corporate world worked from that perspective, and, and, and primarily how the individuals and the human beings within that system are sort of wrapped up in this corporate positioning as opposed to emotional human beings as individuals with their own lives and their own responsibilities and everything else. And that was a thing that, that sort of fascinated me. And now I was no expert at anything, um, but sort of got to that point and I thought there's got to be something here where I can engage around the individual who is an expert at whatever the service is and I can take away all the emotional worry that they've got which is primarily around doing things that they're not good at um, and just allowing them to be great. And that was kind of the premise of how it started. And so we went and, uh, and, and, and um, got out, you know, left, the, left that business. The Reach Foundation were actually the very first client of Bastion 13 years ago. This is sort of um, serendipitous yeah. around, you know, uh, full circle. But um, – that was it. So I started a couple of individual businesses. We made our first acquisition and, and it's sort of grown from there. So you're only 23 at the time. You mm. sold your house. How big a risk was it to start this business? Nah, not big at all, okay. to be honest. Yeah. Um, it was one of the great... The best thing I possibly did was start a business at 23. Mm. No responsibility. No kids. I had no cost. I had no idea. And... and so, you know, I, I had a, a, like a little townhouse thing in Elwood. I, I sold that to be able to have enough dough to buy 30% of this PR company. And, I mean, if I'd have lost all that, 
I mean, it's not ideal, but it's not the end of the world. You know, I had no real um, responsibility at that time to anyone else other than me. And, and you know, I was, I was a young fella. So um, so it was great from that perspective. And the other great thing is that at 23, I thought I knew everything about everything and and didn't. So I went into things f- with full bravado, um, whereas now it's totally different. I don't know if I could do it again now, to be honest, because you know all the things that can yeah, go correct. wrong, you know, you know the journey, you know how hard it is, you know all that sort of stuff, and you've got a lot more responsibility. So, you know, I admire people that start businesses, you know, with a couple of kids on the ground and a mortgage because then there really is a risk. So 12 months in, there's a few hairy moments and you get your old man in. Yes. How, how big a help was he? No, he was he was a great help because um, it was, I mean, I was just going on instinct basically, right? I was going from deal to deal, um, and it was all going fine. Like like um, you know, I was paying the bills and I was doing you know whatever I was doing, and um, but you know, I remember one uh, thing where I had, I had two clients that paid me a a, a combination of um, whatever the income was that I was generating from that. Um, which was f- not much, five, six, seven grand a month. And uh, and I sort of mapped out my costs and, and my expenses. And I thought, I'm a 23-year-old kid. I'm trying to build a business. No one's going to take me seriously unless I drive a nice car. So I bought a BMW <laughs> X5. And so I bought this X5 and I'd mapped out my kind of costs and it was the perfect to that six grand a month or whatever it was. And I remember driving it back and my old man going, geez, where did you get that car? And I explained the sort of strategy. And he goes, you do understand, though, that that six grand is pre-tax. Mm-hmm. So you've got to pay tax <laughs> and you don't get all the six, you know. And I said, no, I don't understand that. <laughs> you know, so then I have to go get another client, you know, and, and those sort of things. So, um, you know, my man's been my mentor um, in every sense of the word for forever. And, and so as a business, I mean, Dad's never sold a client, never delivered a piece of work, never any of that sort of stuff. But was the sort of the mentor and the guidance where I would do dumb stuff like that and I'd go back to him and say, where am I going wrong here? You know, what, what's happening? And uh, and he, he really played that role and has played that role, um, you know, for a long time. So for those that aren't aware, what, what does Bastion do? So we're a marketing company. So we do advertising, public relations, uh, research. We make content. Um, so uh, we do, you know, you watch the Linter Energy advertising during the cricket. Like we do that advertising as an example. Uh, sixth sixth uh, rental car company that's launched in this country recently. We do all those advertisers, uh, all that advertising. We do Xbox, that sort of stuff. So any sort of marketing initiative um, we do. And, uh, and we have a real cross-section of, of services um, that give you the full integrated sort of marketing mix. So businesses all do things a little bit differently, but one thing you brought in was unlimited leave for staff yeah. that you brought in. What was, what was the thinking behind that? Well, we were very big. We got, I got three rules when I run a business, and that is make each other's lives better. Number one, produce world-class work. It's better every time. Number two, and create and run good commercial businesses. Number three, they're, they're the rules. And, uh, and so you've got to make each other's lives better, right? And that's the gig. Now, making each other's lives better doesn't mean make each other's lives easier. Um, especially in the agency world. Agency world is is, is difficult. Um, and so things like unlimited leave, and we had a we had a full bastion academy. We still do. We got a full bastion academy with, with different education programs and emotional intelligence courses. And I actually brought a lot of the reach work into Bastion um, to develop people's emotional intelligence and, and resilience skills um, around that because that they, they can 
all of those initiatives, including unlimited leave, start to remove emotional angst from people's lives. So unlimited leave, you know, the obvious one is, oh, God, people are going to take four months off a year. Well, they're not because you trust that they're there to do the job because they've got to produce world-class work that's better every time and create and run good businesses. You can't do that if you're away for four months of the year, right? So, so when you come at it through that lens, the way people actually use unlimited leave is when their kids got an athletics carnival at school and they want to go there and not take a day of leave, you know, or they want to, you know, take a, a long weekend or, or those couple of days in between the Easter break where you can probably get some time away. Um, you know, you're not worried about your four weeks leave that are so, you know, so restrictive. Um, and that removes a lot of this emotional angst. So you get a much better two-way connection with with your staff and your people. Off the back of that, I mean, footies, there's a world of cliches, but one of them is business is you've got to park your emotion, leave it at the door. I'm assuming from that last answer, that's probably not something you believe in. Nah, it's complete rubbish, that, in, in my view. Um, you have to acknowledge the emotion, and you have to acknowledge where emotion is good and where emotion is bad. And, and you know, that, that whole thing about leave the emotion at the door and all that sort of stuff, I've never seen that in business ever. I've seen I've seen people driven by their emotion, driven by their ego, driven by their, you know, the CV is is the greatest um, ego developer of all time. You know, like like emotion drives us in everything we do. It can't be removed, but it needs to be understood. And most of the time, I mean, the vast majority of the time, it's not understood because people haven't developed social and emotional resilience skills and a better understanding of who they are as a person. They haven't developed that as young people. And so when they get into adulthood, uh, their emotions in many ways can rule their decisions. And, I mean, that's the work we do at REACH, is trying to teach those those skills. Um, so they get in there and they can understand themselves better. So emotion's a really good thing. But I understand it and I understand why that is allowing me to make the decision I'm making and is that the right decision to make, you know? And that consciousness brings together something really special. So I started as a small little business in Melbourne. So what sort of numbers are we employing now, Bastian? Whereabouts else in the world is there offices? And if you don't mind me asking, what sort of turnover are we, we talking about? Yeah, so we got um, we got 300-odd uh, staff. Um, we've got uh, offices in Melbourne, Sydney, Auckland, Los Angeles and New York. Um, we've got probably 200 of those staff in, in Australia and then 50 in New Zealand and roughly 50 in Australia. Uh, sorry, in America. Um, and, uh, and sort of diversified our revenue streams and our service offerings uh, across that. Um, we don't talk publicly about our numbers, but it's somewhere between 50 and 100 million bucks in turnover. Um, and, uh, and yeah, we've seen, you know, I'm, I'm, we're the largest independent in the country now and I'm, I'm pretty confident we're one of, if not the largest independents ever that's been created out of, out of Australia, uh, in the marketing space, which is, you know, it's been there places full of amazing people doing great work. So that's Bastian after the break on, this is your journey with Fergus Watts. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. We'll get stuck into the Reach Foundation. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Fergus Watts has been our guest today. Now, we, we mentioned off the top, Fergus, uh, Reach Foundation, new CEO. Just explain why this foundation is so close to your heart. Well, I've been involved in Reach for 21 years. Um, started as a 15-year-old that went along to a Heroes Day, which is a Reach product that we do, which is 500 young people in a room. Jim Steins was was facilitating it along with Jules Lund, and uh, and you know I, I fell in love with it. And for me, I was a private school educated kid that came from a you know good family and played footy. Like that was my world, you know. And so to walk into into something here and have real conversations about real things that existed in our life as a fifteen year old um, is it's pretty unique, you know. And it's still to this day is, but. Th- but you know, Jim and Paul started the started it twenty eight years ago and twenty one years ago when I worked in it. I mean, it was really unique. You didn't have these conversations, and uh, so it's been a big part of my life ever since. So, what does it mean now to be the CEO? So you're on the board, you step away, become the CEO. What what was sort of the the idea behind that? Well, a couple of years ago, I made the decision to step away from being the CEO of Bastion. I'm still the chairman, I'm still the non-executive chairman, so I'm um, still involved from that perspective. But I made the decision that my my belief is that there's certain people for certain times and my strength is building businesses. Um, it's not running a 300-person business across three countries. And my brother, Jack, who's been involved, he started the sponsorship division within within the, the company and you know he's sort of taken over bit by bit the whole show and... and, and He's much better suited to run and be the CEO of, of, of a business like that. So about 18 months ago, two years we made the decision, 18 months ago I, I stepped out of that role and, and Jack took it over. And uh, and then so probably for a year I lived this great non-exec life and you know, I had a few different businesses that I'm involved in and different things, which was great. But about six months ago I thought it's, there's a long life to be doing this, you know, and so I wanted to sink my teeth into something a bit deeper looked at a bunch of different opportunities and and uh and couldn't really get overly excited about any of them regardless of how sexy they might be or there was some you know some pretty cool stuff yeah and uh i just couldn't get juiced up about it and then um sort of this opportunity came up at reach and uh i'm you know it just feels like the perfect job so i I mean mental health and mental health amongst our youth is is such a Big problem. I, I can imagine it's only been exacerbated by the COVID situation we've been lis- um, living through the last couple of years. So, what is sort of some of your main ma- motivations at Reach now that you're the CEO? So, the the single most important thing that we can do at Reach, outside of impacting as many young people as we possibly can, is changing societal views on what is important in mental health. COVID didn't create a mental health yep. crisis. It's showcasing a mental health crisis, right? And that is because in 2017, five years ago, of all health funding that were in this country, 1.3% of that went to preventative measures. Everything else, at 1.3% is $2 billion. Yep. So the remaining $150 billion or whatever the number is goes into intervention work. So... From a mental health perspective, that means if uh, a young person is uh, having suicidal thoughts, is self-harming, is whatever, or that COVID has exacerbated, is just struggling. just feels like the world is a big bad place, you know, is depressed. We as a society 
are really comfortable to throw billions and billions and billions of dollars at that point. But investing in the young person that doesn't is, is not perceived to have any obvious issues today, the answer is always money's better spent somewhere else. There's someone more in more need, right? Now, when that is the mentality, like it was five years ago and like it is today, you wind the clock forward and we have a major issue like, like COVID that hits everyone sort of all at once. But all young people have their own individual issues that hit them pretty substantially along those journeys. We have not equipped young people with the social and emotional resilience skills required to deal with these scenarios. So a lack of investment five years ago from government, from high net wealth, from anyone giving 50 bucks to any charity anywhere, a lack of prevent, a focus on preventative measures five years ago has meant that a whole bunch of young people today really struggle to deal with the situation they're in. So basically... The majority of funding, the majority of efforts gone into reaction and bugger all into preventative. Mate, if I sit, if I sit with anybody, right, and, and I have a conversation with them about, um, you know, what's the only long-term solution to mental health, 100% of the time they agree that it's preventative measures, educate people, um, that's the only long-term solution. But when it comes time to actually write a check, and I don't care whether you're writing a billion-dollar check and you're the government or you're writing a $10 check and you're just an average person or anywhere in between, you're a corporate aligning itself to a charity, there is significantly less immediate value on the preventative solution than there is on the reactive solution. And so always, I mean 98% of the time, money goes into the reactive solution because it gives an immediate immediate return. Mm. We, we just got to change our view. You know, society needs to change its position, needs to have better conversations around the dinner table. It needs to have better conversations around work. ESG strategies that are in every major corporate in the country now, they need to change their position and say actually the, only, the of course we need to continue to to provide money for intervention work. But we need to really ramp up the focus on preventative work and, and, and in, from a mental health perspective and what we do, create an environment where young people can develop better mental strength so they can make better decisions in their life moving forward. Well, the passion is pretty obvious. Uh, Fergus, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, disappointment, it's a, it's a big part of life, but so is resilience. You experienced that first and you've definitely shown the ladder. What you've gone to do is quite amazing, and clearly you've got a lot to be proud of. Well done on all you've achieved. I feel like you're only just starting at 36 uh, years of age. Thanks for joining us, and uh, best of luck with everything in the future. Good evening, mate. Thank you. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Jump online to find tobinbrothers.com.au. We'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.